Welcome to the Charles Adler Show. Uh, everyone who's been following me for many years knows I'm a hopeless egalitarian. We are all the same. I'm not into, we're all equal, but some are more equal than others. But, here's, there's always a big fat but. But when I say that we have a special guest, in seconds you'll see and, and hear why I'm using the words special guest. Um, with, with, without further ado, except to say this, I've been, per, I've been given permission, okay, by the guest, uh, my friend, to call her the way I would do off the air and to call her by her first name. Rachel Notley, welcome to the show. Thanks, it's good to be here. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm excellent. Uh, this is a, a, a privileged moment for, for a lot of us. Look, uh, everyone has been talking to you about all of your political decisions and your most recent decision, and there's no doubt that we'll get into some of that. But I'm always more interested in the personal growth decisions that a human being makes uh, much more than their political decisions, and I don't uh, believe that any of their political decisions can be terribly wise unless they've laid a foundation for it with their own humanity and their own evolution. So I would suggest that based on the life that we're living in the world right now, where the rule of law is under continuous assault, I want to ask my friend Rachel, what was the context for one of the biggest personal growth decisions she made, which was to attend Canada's Osgood Hall Law School? Well, uh, interesting. So, of course, uh, I, I decided to go to law school, uh, you know, for a couple of reasons, partially because I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do when I graduated with my BA, but also because I had spent some time uh, working in, a, in constituency offices as a constituency case manager uh, for New Democrat MLAs in, in Alberta while I was going doing my undergrad. And uh, at that time, one of the, uh, one of the uh, constituency offices that I worked in was about two blocks away from the old Gainers plant. And uh, you may or may not know about the story of, of when uh, there was a massive strike uh, at the Gainers plant against Peter Palkington, who at the time was the, uh, the owner and also the owner of the Oilers. People will know him from that. And we had a lot of those uh, workers uh, coming into our office during the strike. And we also had, uh, the, the, the province was in a recession at the time, we had a lot of uh, building trades workers coming into the office as well who were struggling. And a lot of them had uh, problems with workers' compensation. And uh, um, and and I'll, I'll tell you, if you are uh, a particularly a guy uh, who works in the trades uh, or in construction or in labor, and and you uh, get injured at work, uh, it's a it's a long and and uh, litigious and pretty painful road in terms of navigating the workers' compensation board. And it's a really complex system. So at the time, I was, I don't know, 21, 22. And, uh, you know, I didn't know exactly how to help these folks. And uh, I quickly learned that there was so much complexity to the system that, that I really wanted to know more about it and to be good at helping people. And so uh, Osgood Hall... Um, had a poverty law program and one of the the components to it was a workers rights section where you could learn sort of the administrative uh, elements of of a whole range of systems that impacted on the on the rights of workers and so uh, even though I was accepted at, at a bunch of different law schools uh, I chose to go to Osgood because of the poverty law clinic. So the motivation wasn't egotistical it was utilitarian? It was very utilitarian yeah it was very utilitarian and uh, um, 
just because otherwise, you know, I was I still remember the rundown little constituency office in Fort Road in northeast Edmonton. And and, you know, at that point, all the only tool I had was to call people up and yell at them on behalf of the MLA. And, you know, that only worked so far. Yeah. <laughs> what, what was it like for the Alberta girl to be in uh, Toronto? Did uh, did they condescend or was there egalitarianism on that campus? Well, you know, I'll tell you something. Uh, that was my first real look into the idea of sort of, you know, stratified wealth. Uh, I don't think of that as a big deal in, in Canada, but but there is a big difference between <laughs> Central Canada and the prairies. And I used to say, hey, folks, you know, the premier of our province, their kids go to the same high school that's right next door to a to a you know an affordable housing complex with with uh, kids whose parents are on income support and and everybody goes to the same schools and yes i guess down in calgary there was starting to be a bit of a proliferation of private schools but certainly wasn't in edmonton and and we can't you know alberta continues to be really a very um economically mobile place and and certainly uh when i was even in the in the uh, late 80s, I was surprised by the number of people who'd say, oh, I went to such and such school and such and such school. And I'd be like, yeah, so why do I care about this? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a bit of an eye-opening experience for sure. Well, Montreal is uh, technically my, my hometown. I mean, uh, Budapest is, is the hometown on the birth certificate, but Montreal is mm -hmm. where I was raised. And uh, Montreal was certainly very stratified, and Montreal was a classist uh, society. So I fell in love with the prairie as a young person. Calgary was the first place. Alberta was the first place where I, I was able to turn on a professional microphone. But it was the egalitarianism uh, of Alberta and then the egalitarianism of the rest of the Western Canadian provinces that really made me fall in love with the West and makes mm -hmm. me identify as, as a Westerner. Rachel Notley, I want to ask you about uh, how laws apply today, the contempt for the rule of law, not asking you to be a, a partisan NDPer, not asking you to throw rocks at the uh, current Premier of Alberta, uh, not asking you to throw rocks at, uh, at Donald Trump. I just want to get into your, your, your head a little bit about your idea of rule of law respect for rule of law, the connection between rule of law and democracy, and what's happening right now? Well, I mean, there, there's no question that, um, you know, as imperfect as democracy is, it is, in fact, the best system that, that we, uh, as humans, have come up with uh, for the purposes of organizing ourselves and governing ourselves. And democracy as a whole rests on the foundation of the rule of law. And, and when you start to chip away at it, then obviously the, the obvious casualty is, is our democratic system. And, and uh, you know, you don't have to be a lawyer uh, to, or a philosopher to, to really understand that. You, you just need to sort of think through the problems. I mean, you know, the majority rules but there are certain rules where the majority doesn't get to, don't get to rule, you know. The majority doesn't get to say it's okay to shoot people in the street because we also have rules. The majority doesn't get to say that their way is the right way and minorities don't have rights because we have the rule of law. And, and so um, uh, we, we, you know, the two must work together. And so it is very, very troubling. Uh, to see the the disrespect and the flagrant disregard uh, for the rule of law in in uh, very recent and current 
uh, political spheres. And you know, you mentioned Trump, you mentioned the Alberta government. Uh, those aren't the only examples, but they are two examples for sure. And and it is concerning. And um, uh, when you pair that with the growing uh, lack of concern or accountability for telling the truth and tracking what is fact and what is fiction, uh, we we are on a bit of a dangerous path right now. And and uh, I would urge people, regardless of their political stripe, to to think about uh, uh, exercising some restraint. And and to perhaps uh, you know um, reattach themselves to these 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 fundamental um, foundational principles. How do you speak uh, to this uh, popularist uh, idea, this populist and popularized idea that uh, they all lie? Uh, if uh, someone uh, catches a certain uh, politician lie, uh, the rejoinder is, well, they they all lie. What's the difference? So let's just peg this as both sidesism. Uh, what's uh, Rachel Notley's view of both sidesism? and whether or not it poses a threat to democracy. Well, again, I, I think that, uh, um, you know, there, there's no absolute in this, but the gray area has form and function and, and uh, uh, its own sets of rules. And, you know, the example that I sometimes give to people when I have the uh, privilege of talking for half an hour <laughs> and, and yattering on endlessly is, you know, back in the day when I first got elected in the, in the legislature, I remember in, I don't know, it was 2008, 2009, somewhere in there, uh, we, we, there was a minister, and I won't bother naming him, but there was a, a minister of the, of the government of the day who had, uh, you know, answered some questions in the House uh, by uh, asserting a number of facts. And then there were some documents that were leaked uh, from a cabinet conversation where it was very clear that he had lied to the legislature about what the government was planning based on the documents and the dates and all those things. And so I, you know, as a, as a relatively green and earnest and enthusiastic uh, young legislator, spent uh, days putting together a 10 or 11 page submission on uh, a point of privilege whereby, you know, I made the argument that the privilege of all the members of the Legislative Assembly had been breached because the minister uh, misled the House. And as you know, as a, as a watcher of politics, that in the day-to-day -day course of things, you're not allowed to tell or accuse somebody of lying in the House because uh, the, the argument is that, you know, everybody's version of the truth is, I'm not exactly even sure what the argument is, quite frankly, but nonetheless, you're not allowed to say it. But there is a, a very narrow exception where if, there, if you can absolutely show that, you know, here is fact A and here is assertion B and that by misleading intentionally that you've undermined somebody else's ability to do their job, then there is an opportunity. So anyway, did this long submission. And, and the speaker of the day, uh, who of course was a member of the Conservative Party, actually was uh, forced to go to his lawyers and respond with a similarly long uh, 10 or 15 page response uh, to why it was that I had not actually uh, made my case that there was a point of privilege. The point is, is now, fast forward to now, Every day, people get up and say things that just are not true, and it's so clear on the face of the record. They're saying things that are just, they, they contradict the government's own website and the government's own documents that are black and white right in front of them. They just do it casually. And and this idea that there would be this, this very serious, sober conversation about whether something was in, uh, an intentional uh, um, effort to, to lie to the legislature has just gone by the wayside. So... 
I do see that it's changed and, and, and we've become very casual with the truth. And I don't accept the oh, all politicians lie argument um, uh, because I believe very strongly that politicians should not lie. And uh, I believe that my whole life. And I also, you know, happened to, you know, I watched my dad uh, as a politician at a very early age. And I believe that some politicians uh, can be very noble and very ethical. And, uh, and I don't uh, uh, buy the, the narrative that everybody is awful. And quite frankly, I think that people who try to do, who do do that regularly, uh, have a much uh, more nefarious intent. And that is to undermine uh, the strength of democracy. So uh, my uh, father uh, voted uh, liberal provincially and uh, federally every single time, and one of the safest uh, ridings in Canada for the liberals, that would be uh, Mount Royal. He voted for mm -hmm. uh, Pierre Trudeau. Had he uh, lived long enough to vote for Justin Trudeau, I have no doubt that he would vote for him. But despite his, the partisanship or seeming partisanship of his votes, his uh, political mind was, was anything but partisan. And I do remember very, very vividly that there were some politicians in Western Canada that he really admired. There were two of them in Saskatchewan, one being John Diefenbaker, the other Tommy Douglas, and there were two in Alberta. It won't surprise you that one was Peter Lougheed and the other was your, your late father. So my question to you, Rachel Notley, in light of all of that, before we talk about your late father, I want mm -hmm. you to talk about someone who many Canadians, regardless of their political proclivities, see as one of the greatest Canadian human beings of all time. And that would be Saskatchewan's Tommy Douglas. What would you like to say about him? And if, if some of that is inspired or perhaps echoes the feelings of your dad, it's fine with me. Rachel Notley on TC Douglas. Well, I mean, I think that uh, as Canadians, we were all so lucky uh, to have Tommy Douglas. He was uh, someone who, you know, coming actually from a, from a religious tradition, uh, who believed uh, with with absolute uh, um, passion and certainty in in the value of, of helping your neighbor and and standing up uh, for those without a voice and and in the strength of people coming together and the value of people coming together and those those values are values that, that I still believe in today and and that I think many new Democrats believe in today. And, and of course, those are the values that drove him to be so uh, committed to pursuing uh, the introduction of, of uh, public health care uh, in our, in first in Saskatchewan, then across the, the country. And so we owe him uh, such a, a deep debt. And, and, you know, it was interesting. He was just such a, a tiny little man, really, you know, in terms of statue, but just, uh, just so incredibly uh, passionate and and intelligent and authentic, and and principled, and uh, and and so that is the kind of person uh, who I think all politicians, regardless of of which uh, political party they identify with, should aspire uh, to be, because that's what public service looks like. And uh, you know, I've, I I don't know if I've ever told you the story before, but but I back in the day when I had more time to be sort of uh, in my riding on a more frequent basis before I was uh, the leader, I used to go around to uh, the grade six classes in my uh, in my neighborhood with uh, used to drive the conservatives bananas. But uh, I slowly got all the teachers very excited about it, and they went along with it regardless. And I would read the Mouseland, uh, the grade six government classes, and then we would talk about you know. 
uh, well, who, who is he talking about here? Who are the mice and, and who are the cats? And, and how does that apply to what's happening now? And, and, and you know, what's your version of that? And, and uh, um, anyway, uh, yeah, uh, Tommy Douglas has, has defined a nation and uh, it's, um, uh, and I'm so glad to be part of the nation that he was able to help define. So I've uh, written about this uh, before and uh, talked to my uh, good friend uh, Edmonton's own uh, podcaster, Ryan Jesperson, uh, about uh, your legacy and, and what is it that uh, attracted me to you. And it's, uh, you know, very much an intellectual thing. And because and, I don't think we've ever actually been in the, in the same room, uh, but I've followed your career assiduously. And, you know, you're a person, and I don't say this lightly, who has a moral conscience of course you've got a personal conscience i'd like to think we all do but i think you've got a social conscience that some people talk about but not everybody walks the walk and i think that you do it's incumbent upon me to ask rachel notley where does the social conscience come from well i mean i think there's no question that uh, those those kinds of values um uh, I mean, not everybody uh, gets them from their parents. Some people uh, develop them as their own. You know, they are their own human beings, and and they they develop them. So I, uh, and and I've I've met some incredible people along the way who perhaps weren't raised uh, uh, in a in a family that that promoted those values, but but who uh, came to the movement and and went on to to live those values in a way that's uh, incredibly admirable. In my case, of course, I was privileged to be uh, raised by by both my parents, um, and so you know, two stories. One that I I did tell back in the day, uh, right before uh, I ran to be premier in 2015, just as I was becoming leader, and and Rick Bell at the time uh, told the story, and it was the one good headline I got from Rick Bell before the election. <laughs> he still reminds me of it to this day. But uh, you know, as a very young child, so my dad was very involved in was you know, provincial secretary and then ultimately a leader of Alberta's NDP and he was often not around and so of course my mom would, uh, you know, explain to me about where he was and all those things and, and she used to read to me a lot and of course she read uh, a, a number of stories to me uh, and, and one of course was Robin Hood and at a certain point she just basically described well your dad is kind of like a modern day version of Robin Hood he really believes that <laughs> we need to you know, uh, uh, you know take from the rich and give to the poor and make sure that everybody gets their share and so this was the kind of stories that I got told to me when I was about four so it's hardly surprising <laughs> that that I uh, would would grow up with these values, but then also as as uh, you know, I always am very clear to to add. I mean, my mother as well uh, had an exceptionally strong uh, uh, social justice frame, and that that drove much of what she did. She was very active uh, in her church, and she was active in in uh, international as sort of very uh, took a strong interest in international relations, and she also believed very strongly in, in uh, working inside her community, and also uh, really uh, promoted the, the value of, of community service as much as, as my dad did, so just in a different way. And, and so, uh, yeah, so I was, you know, very lucky to, to get that kind of guidance from pretty much day one. So we've talked about some of the highlights of Rachel Notley's life. Uh, let me just uh, do a bit of a, a pivot here. Um, you belong to a club that nobody wants to belong to. Your father died in a plane crash. Please reflect. 
<laughs> uh, please reflect. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, what can I say? I mean, um, you know, that was a, a surprising uh, uh, and, and tragic event. Um, it, I would say, uh, gave me a, an, an enhanced sense of the value that people uh, placed on my dad's contribution to the province. Uh, I think that not just me, but all of us around him were surprised at the outpouring, uh, um, you know, because, you know, and then sort of there was dark humor at the time. It was like, it's really unfortunate that he's not around to see all this because, you know, he never felt like he got that much good media when he was alive. But, um, uh, you know, it, but it, it, it did uh, really uh, uh, imprint uh, uh, for me and, and those around us how important uh, the work was that he did and, and how valuable it was to people um, in the province and across the country. And uh, I think it is also fair to say that, that um, you know, had my dad uh, lived, that I may not have gone into politics. You know, the pressure kind of came on me very quickly uh, from people within our, you know, political family to start thinking about going into politics, um, even though I was only 20 uh, when he died. And uh, so that was, you know, a big thing. And uh, um, yeah, you, what can I say? Uh, it's a, a formative event in, in, in uh, a person's life when they lose a parent at that age. Pardon the use of my bridge, please reflect. There's nothing that ticks me off more than someone asking someone about a death in the family and then saying, so how did you feel about that? I was not <laughs> going <not> to <laughs> use that, 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 that one. Rachel Notley, at the time of your father's untimely demise, did you think that the party that he founded could form government in your lifetime? You know, I think right around that time and, and probably a couple of years afterwards, there was a, a, a brief moment where people thought maybe it could happen because you may recall, I mean, it was, it was very interesting. I mean, you know, my, my dad died in, in the plane crash at the end of 1984 and then March of 1986, which was whatever, uh, 18 months later, we went from uh, the two seats that they'd had to scrape uh, to get because even in his last election, my dad only won by about 50 votes. Um, in, in our riding, um, and Ray Martin had won by about 50 votes as well. And then in the next election, we, we won 16 seats, which seemed beyond the, 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 the greatest possible dreams of, of so many of us at the time and so many activists. I mean, I was, again, pretty young in the party overall. Uh, and, and, but when that happened, I think there was a period of time when people hoped that, that, you know, the next step was to get into government. And there was a time, uh, in, uh, the early nineties, about 91, 92, when polling actually showed, uh, the NDP, the liberals and the PCs all tied at around, uh, 30, roughly, you know, 30 to 35%. And so there was that hope. And then, uh, what ended up happening, of course, was the NDP, uh, dropped uh, considerably, and uh, and and um, uh, we lost all of our seats um, in that 1993 election. So 
there was a brief moment, but then, of course, we refer to from the 93 onwards as sort of being the dark ages of the party. And, and uh, there was a lot of people who worked very hard to keep the party alive. And, uh, um, and, and thank goodness for that, because they, they never gave up. And it was that kind of fortitude which uh, maintained the foundation uh, that ultimately, uh, you know, Brian Mason, David Egan, uh, Raj Panu, um, Pam Barrett, um, uh, me and Darren Bellis were, were able to, to build off of. And, um, uh, and, and it's that, again, that, that real uh, commitment to the values and the, and the belief in the importance of ensuring that there is a voice for the underdog, that there is a voice for people who otherwise are not used to uh, being able to command a room and command attention uh, in any kind of conversation. And we believed passionately in the importance of that. And so uh, not just us, but, but, but you know, I don't know, 500 to 1,000 Alberta NDP activists just wouldn't let the dream go. And, and so it's not about whether we thought we'd be in government. It was about the fact that we knew we needed to maintain that, that vehicle for that voice. And then, yeah, uh, and that's certainly what drove me to, to run. I wasn't running expecting to become premier, um, uh, but, uh, you know, in 2008, and uh, honestly, I wasn't really running expecting to be premier until about two weeks into the election in 2015. <laughs> so the NDP, is sometimes provincially and always federally, has this reputation of, you know, like in federally, they want to be the conscience of parliament and all of that. And so mm -hmm. they're, the, they're a cause much more yeah. than an organization seeking power. Without saying, please reflect on that. I would like to. <laughs> I would like to ask you whether, in 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 the past years, when you were in the cut and thrust of a campaign, and people were saying things about you to disparage you and to disparage your your colleagues, uh, surely to God there must have been times where you wanted to be competitive. Yes, you wanted power, mm. just like anybody else. Did you ever feel that this idea that the NDP wasn't really a party about power, but only about a cause. Did you ever feel that that was forming an albatross around you and your party and preventing you from, from going as far as you could? Well, you know, it's a really, really good question. And, and I will say that it is both a strength and a weakness. And it, it, it is, I think, uh, a skill and a craft to be able to navigate it in a way to take advantage of that fact. Uh, uh, in a way that is is successful. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, we can't let go of those foundational principles um, uh, because we need to have the courage of our convictions sometimes to make decisions that can be hard. And say, for uh, a couple of examples that I would think of in my own time when I was premier was, you know, uh, when I was running to be leader, I committed that we would uh, raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And then when I became premier, there was a lot of folks that, that challenged whether we should do that. And But I believed in my heart of hearts, and I go back to sort of that, that cause kind of, of, of perspective, that it was the right thing to do. And, and so we just pushed through. Uh, but there are definitely times when you also have to be pragmatic. And it's... It's, I think, uh, for, um, for politicians who come from that tradition, regardless of which side on the, of the spectrum they, they uh, draw their, their inspiration, um, it is always a struggle to uh, stay true to your convictions, but to also be 
uh, pragmatic and responsive, quite frankly, to the people you are seeking to, to, to lead and, and whose support you're seeking to earn. And so it's a judgment call each and every day, I got to say. And, and I, don't, I, I, I don't know that anybody ever gets it right all the time. And I think that, uh, the, you know, as, as a person hoping to be in that position, you need to hope that you get it right more often than not. And you need to be able to look back on it after the fact and hope that you've stayed true to your convictions, but at the same time done everything you can to maximize the opportunity for the folks uh, in your party who are part of your cause to get to the point where they can make real decisions that will make uh, a positive impact uh, for the people you're, you're hoping to serve. Rachel, I know you're a provincial figure, but to me, you'll always be a, a national figure. And I look at you from a, a national perspective. Whether we like it or not, as Canadians, we're always comparing ourselves to the United States. And sometimes that gives us some moral smugness, and other times it gives us some feelings of inferiority. I'm ashamed to say it's just a, a Canadian fact of life. <laughs> Before I let you go, I need to ask you this: uh, from Nat- Rachel Notley's perspective, what separates being Canadian from being American, what's the difference between Canada and the United States? Well, uh, lots of interesting answers to that question. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, I talked about my mother. I mean, she emigrated here from the U.S. Uh, in her early 20s, and she was a social justice activist in the U.S. So she always had some pretty strong opinions and used to talk to me about them uh, quite a bit. I would argue uh, for sure that I, I think that Canada's NDP has played a key role um, in, in terms of ensuring that a progressive voice is always heard um, and it's not watered down to the point where it's indistinguishable uh, from, from uh, a, a centrist or, or, or right voice. And, and so I think, and so certainly people have argued over many years that, that in the absence of Canada's NDP, uh, there would be almost no distinction uh, from a public policy perspective or a governance perspective um, from the U.S. So uh, that is a thing. Um, but, you know, I think it's hard to make generalizations, too. I mean, there's so much di- there's so much divergence in the U.S., too, between people. And, I, you know, I mean, there are some folks in the U.S. who are light years. I, I, you know, I could I could learn from them for the rest of my life. Uh, you know, public figures, um, you know, uh, uh, intellectuals, activists. Um, and and I don't like the whole, you know, we're better, they're, they're worse kind of thing. I worry about the state of their democracy right now. I think that um, the failure to get a handle on election financing uh, many, many decades ago has has morphed into a a, a really problematic um, situation. And, um, uh, you know, my my mother always used to talk about how she, one of the reasons she was such a great fan of the monarchy was that, you know, politicians uh, could be politicians and could be held to account. And, and the sort of celebrity status kind of thing that sometimes happens with the head of state in the U.S. Uh, could be, you know, filed under, yes, that's for the monarch. And then meanwhile, we're going to have grown-up conversations with our politicians. Now, I'm not entirely sure that the monarchy has uh, completely, is, is the only reason why uh, we have slightly more um, uh, thoughtful conversations between our politicians. Uh, but it was an interesting observation at the time. And, and I'm not a, a huge expert on, on American politics, but I, I certainly will say that, that uh, 
um, you know, we, we, uh, uh, I, I hope very much that, that they're able to have uh, a, a, a conversation there where everybody participates fairly, that, that, that everybody is given the same access to vote, um, and that uh, there is a growing uh, reestablishment of a common understanding around certain facts. <laughs> and I think that that applies uh, to the U.S. And, 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 frankly, to democracies all over the world. Rachel, thank you for the uh, thoughtful conversation, but most, most important uh, for all of us. Thank you for your public service. Well, thank you, and, and uh, I hope to be able to chat with you more in the future. And thank you for, for uh, all of your commentary on so many things. Rachel Notley, the departing leader of the NDP. When? I'm not sure, but uh, that's, the, that's the train she's on. And she's also the former Premier of Alberta, and I will... Uh, Make this prediction for you. You will be hearing lots from Rachel Notley in the coming years nationally. Thank you for joining us. I'm Charles Adler.